Welcome to Odo Did You Know, where we sit down with people from the University of Michigan Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery Department and take a deep dive into something about them that you likely didn't know. The goal is to find out more about who we are, what we're passionate about, and what sparks joy. I'm Tara Weaver-Hawley, the host and communication specialist for Odo. For the last episode of this series, I'm sitting down with Dr. David Brown, pediatric otolaryngologist, associate vice president, and associate dean for health equity and inclusion at the medical school, and co-founder of the Life Sciences Orchestra to talk about his passion for playing music, which led to him mastering more than one instrument and starting the LSO 24 years ago. So let's find out. Did you know? Thank you again for taking time to chat with me today, Dr. Brown. Can you take us back to the beginning of your music journey and talk about when you started playing the flute? Yeah, thank you for having me on this podcast. You know, music is a passion of mine. And so it's just a thrill to be asked and to be a part of this. So music for me, you know, the desire for music started in in the fourth grade. So I grew up in New Jersey and I was living in a city, East Orange, outside of Newark. And they brought in um, musicians and different uh, instruments uh, and kind of showcased like what they did and and what was interesting about them. And, and so at that time, I remember being fascinated by the violin because of the broad range and, and the French horn, uh, because of, you know, it's kind of beautiful sound and, and the cello, just because I, I just love the human voice, the voicing that they talked about from the cello. And then I went home to my mother and, and said that, you know, wow, I want to, it was an opportunity to, to rent uh, instruments. And I said, Oh, I love to rent one. And even though it costs, I think, you know, maybe $22 a month, we couldn't afford it. And, and so, and so I just kind of forgot about music for two years. And then one of my uh, mother's sisters, my aunt, her good friend heard that I was interested in music and had a clarinet and a flute in her attic. And she's like, well, I haven't used this in like over these in over a decade. So she actually just gave them to me in the sixth grade. And so I actually started playing the clarinet and the flute at the same time. Well, to be honest, I was mainly playing the clarinet and uh, the flute really came a few years later because there was no need for flutes in any of the ensembles that I was in, but there was a great need for clarinets. So I played the clarinet from the sixth grade up until the 11th grade. And uh, I went away to high school starting the 10th grade. And I would have potentially been principal clarinet of uh, our high school band, but I didn't even tell the band director when I auditioned for the honors band that I was actually showing up for flute. You just had to put your name down. And so he was shocked when I showed up with a flute. (laughs) And then instead of being principal clarinet, I was actually principal flute. It was my first time actually playing the flute in the ensemble after playing the clarinet for multiple years. That's impressive to play two, to learn two instruments at the same time, essentially, and and to the level where your principal uh, first chair in, in both instruments. One of the reasons that I transitioned to the flute in 11th grade is because quite honestly, like the reeds for the clarinet, you know, even though they were like 50 cents a piece, it was at, at times that was cost prohibitive. And so you would have a competition or to play and you didn't have a good read. And if you can't afford um, a read, then you're not going to be able to play your instrument. So 
one of the reasons why I quote unquote defaulted uh, to the flute is that you have a head joint on the flute and you never need to do anything to it. It's not like the oboe and you need to shave your reeds or it's not like the clarinet where your reed's going to break or you need a softer reed for this and a harder reed for that. And so I, one of the reasons why I switched to the flute in 11th grade more long-term is uh, because it was more financially viable. Uh, did Was there a marching band where you went to high school? Did you participate in that? So, it's very interesting. I went to high school in the ninth grade in New Jersey in the inner city and we did have a marching band and it was a, it was a lot of fun you know the band was like really part of kind of really getting the crowd into it our football team wasn't great and then when I went away to high school in Massachusetts the head of our band and, and music the department there was an oboe, oboist and he personally felt that you know, people should not march and play, especially as an oboist, because that's really hard to do. So we did have a pep band that played in the stands, but we we never got on the field. So I played in that band in the fields. And then my freshman year of college, you know, I was in the orchestra at Brown and and I and I went I, I played in the band one game. But after I, I realized that I didn't have the time uh, for doing everything. So I, you know, I stopped. That was my last time of playing in a, in a marching band. So you talked about, you mentioned you played in an orchestra in college. Did you pursue any formal music studies in college or? So I, I went to Brown for college and we did not have uh, like a music major. So I was a, you know, human biology concentrator and, um, uh, I did take lessons uh, with the, one of the flute teachers there, and I took some music theory courses, you know, for fun, but uh, I didn't major in music, and there were probably very few music majors, and they were probably music theory or something like that, but the vast majority of the orchestra members were just, you know, college and graduate students, so we did not, we did not um, have any music majors there, but it was still a lot of fun, you know, I was the... I was a principal flute of the Brown Orchestra my freshman year, and I won the concerto competition when I was a freshman as well. And then when I went to medical school at Harvard, there was an orchestra in, in the medical school that only played a few concerts, and I played in some orchestras at Harvard College. There's also a doctor's orchestra at um, in the Boston area called um, Longwood, uh, but you know there weren't any openings. It's you know it kind of made me. Um, a little upset that you got a position in the Longwood Symphony and you just kept it until you left. And the principal flutist wasn't even a physician. So that also got me upset. <laughs> but so I never gotten to, I never had the opportunity to audition for the Longwood Symphony. But, you know, I had other ensembles to play in medical school. So that maybe makes a nice segue into talking about the Life Sciences Orchestra here. Um, I know you're one of the co-founders of that. Is that sort of where the genesis of that idea came from? Or what was the idea at the start of that? So I'm sure that was in the back of my mind. But what happened was I was playing in a quintet, a woodwind quintet with physicians here at, the, you know, at, at Michigan. Mike DiPietro, who's a bassoonist, uh, one of the neurosurgery faculty members, uh, was the clarinetist. Uh, there was... Um, an oboist who was a medical student, myself, and then the French horn actually came, was at the music school. 
And we actually never performed. We just got together and played like every week and played quintets and had a, a lot of fun. And then one day I just said, wow, you know, this is fun, but like, I'm thinking bigger and I want something more. So then uh, I said, I, I want to start an orchestra. And I was doing my research block. So it was August of my um, of my full year of research. And I went to Elaine Sims of Gifts of Art and said, hey, this is something I would like to do. And uh, we got together two other medical students and Kara Gavin from Communications, who was also a horn player, and we really pulled this together rather quickly. We met with the the head of the conducting program here at, at the, uh, the University of Michigan School of Music Theater and Dance. And dance. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, and I, at that time, I didn't know that this was like one of the, you know, best conducting programs in the country. So we, we talked to him and he gave us uh, a master's student to be our conductor and helped us with the repertoire, like it, with the selection. And we uh, had auditions about like three or four weeks later. And then two weeks later, we started rehearsing. And so it was rather quick. So it required a lot of emails out to a lot of people and word of mouth. But we got a lot of people to come and uh, to audition. And we took a lot of them. So, you know, many of them who got in that first year probably would not get in these days because a lot back then there were so many people who were who were musicians in the past, but not ha had not touched their instruments in years. And so this mm -hmm. was kind of like a reconnection uh, for them to music. But these days, people now come to Michigan knowing that the orchestra exists. And sometimes this is a, an attraction for them. And oh, wow. so the level of playing is so much higher. And an interesting story about the Life Sciences Orchestra, the LSO, is that Dr. Bartlett, who is you know the founder of ECMO, was one of the original members and was in the orchestra for about 20 years. And the first conductor was one of his patients and almost had to go on ECMO. And so it's kind of interesting because the Ann Arbor News got hold of that. And then they created this like story that wasn't actually true and published it and saying that there was a doctor and a patient and the patient went under ECMO and the doctor saved his life. And then the patient woke up and he says, I'm a conductor. And the doctor said, I'm a bassoonist. And then they said, let's start an orchestra. <laughs> None of that is true. And so, but it, it was, it's, it's great, you like drama, but none of that's true. But that was one of the original stories about the Life Sciences Orchestra. But, you know, speaking of Dr. Bartlett, who's like a world-renowned surgeon, one of the things I love about the Life Sciences Orchestra is that, you know, you have someone who's like world-renowned surgeon sitting next to someone who's a first-year medical student who doesn't even know what their career is going to look like. And yet that first-year medical student is a better bass player than <laughs> this world-renowned surgeon. And so it kind of equalizes a lot of the hierarchies and it really builds community. It builds opportunities for mentorship. And a lot of the people uh, have had connections, you know, outside of the, the orchestra. So in these days, when we're talking about, you know, wellness and well-being, I think people look forward to music, to the rehearsals, uh, because it, it does help them connect to more humanistic sides of, of life. 
So it sounds like interest from the get-go was high. And it didn't, it sounds like you didn't really have trouble finding people to audition and members filling out the orchestra. Is the orchestra bigger now than it was because it has that history and that people are aware of it? Or has it, do you mm -hmm. kind of keep it at a certain size? It's a great question. So I would say the orchestra is much better, not always bigger. Uh, so now we're in our 24th year. Next year, a year from now, we'll be in our 25th year. And the size of the orchestra really depends on the repertoire. And so if we're doing like a Mahler symphony, we need like maybe eight horn players. And so the orchestra gets much bigger. And so um, it's it's not necessarily bigger, but it's it's much better. I remember the first concert and rehearsing we were doing, I was really proud of that, you know, we we got, we matter of weeks and we're rehearsing and um, I didn't play in the academic festive overture. So I was just in the hallway of the music school where we rehearsed. Then I heard and saw two music students walk down the hall and I overheard them say, what is that bad high school orchestra in there? Oh, no. And uh, it was really kind of crushing because, you know, I felt really proud that, oh, I, I did something great. And then they're saying, like, this is like the worst high school orchestra I ever heard. <laughs> and, you know, thinking back on it, it was pretty bad. You know, there was lots of intonation issues, lots of, you know, wrong notes and wrong entrances because it was really uh, people, dust again, dusting off their instruments. And then you fast forward 24 years ahead, now for the graduate students in conducting, this is a very desired orchestra for them to conduct. And many of the conductors have gone on to do great things and are leading uh, conductors throughout the world and won national and international competitions and have amazing careers. And they attribute, attribute a lot of their success to leading and managing the LSO. And, you know, we just had a concert this past Sunday, which I had the great uh, fortune to be the master of ceremonies. And the orchestra sounds incredible, like literally better than ever, better than many amateur orchestras uh, in the country. And so even though it hurt when they said, what is that bad uh, high school orchestra? I'm feel, I feel really proud that we stuck it out and that we were producing such high quality. There were audience members who came up to me saying that during the Tchaikovsky Symphony Number no. 5 that, that they were moved to tears because of the emotions that the orchestra was able to bring forward. And it's, it's at a level that I'm extremely proud of now. There's nothing like live music, I think, whether it's jazz, you know, world music, um, particularly classical or you know, orchestral music. Um, it's great, though, that that opportunity exists for the community um, and the fact that it's free to go to, that sort of open access to music, because a lot of concerts and opportunities to hear live music are cost prohibitive to spend, you know, hundreds of dollars on it just for one ticket. It's like, so the fact that those opportunities exist to see a quality group like the Life Sciences Orchestra is really great for, for the community as well. So we, that was part of our initial mission is to always have it free because especially now I'm doing work in health equity, we want to make sure that people have access to this. And we said that we want children of all ages to participate. There's probably not one recording of the Life Sciences Orchestra that a baby is not 
crying. Uh, and we just come to accept it, that that is part of being an orchestra full of community members of, at the University of Michigan and the life sciences and for the community, that this is what we expect. But um, And so that's part of the beauty of the life sciences orchestra. No, it's great. And it's it's great that that's part of the mission of the, the life sciences orchestra um, is to maintain that open access and availability to anyone and everyone. Going back to 2019, you were the co-winner of the concerto competition that year, mm-hmm. performed the flute solo at the spring concert, right, that wow. in 2019. Mm-hmm. And yes. so can you talk a little bit about, maybe a little bit about how the concerto competition came about within the Life Sciences Orchestra and then your experience with it auditioning and then performing? So we realized that there were lots of talented people at University of Michigan and in the Life Sciences. And so the Life Sciences Orchestra, you, as long as you are in any part of the Life Sciences, you can be a member. You can work in environmental services in a hospital and be a trumpet player, and you can be a member. We also realized that there were a lot of people who had done music. A lot of individuals um, who are in the orchestra went to music school, either at Michigan mm-hmm. or other other music schools, and they decided to go the healthcare route or nursing route or public health route. And so um, uh, since we realized that there was talent, we decided to have a concerto competition every other year and be able to showcase the talents of, of, of our amazing people. And I remember the first person who won the concerto competition was the principal oboist, who I believe was an administrative assistant at, at, the, at the hospital, who went to the Juilliard School. And, and so he clearly he was an, an incredible oboist. And so um, he won the concerto competition the first year we did it. Um, the year that you do uh, audition and, and won, what was it like performing that solo at the concert that year? It was amazing and nerve wracking. I mean, <laughs> I picked a really hard concerto. I just, I wanted to challenge myself. So I played the Nielsen flute concerto. And so, so it was nerve wracking and exciting uh, and thrilling to, to kind of be surrounded by a group that I helped bring together multiple years beforehand. And then uh, then I realized I, I get really nervous when I perform, which I didn't, you know, before. So I won two other concerto competitions when I was younger and I just got up there and played. But then I realized I get really nervous. So I actually, one of the faculty members at the music school, his uh, wife does like kind of music therapy so I, I went to visit her, I think three times and tried to figure out, do I take a beta blocker? Do I play with music? Do I not play with music? So after like three visits and spending a whole bunch of money, I decided to play with music because the piece was really hard. And I decided to take a beta blocker. Um, and a funny story around that is that during, right before the concert, you often run parts of the music just to make sure the balance is good and everything. And so they called me to the stage and I said, oh my goodness, I got to take my beta blocker. And so, and it doesn't work right away. So we're at this really hard part with lots of fast notes and I'm just not getting it. And then the conductor says to me, do you want to slow it down? I said, I'm, I said, I'm not going to get it now, but I said, during the performance, it'll be fine. Because uh, I knew the beta blocker would 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 start working and I'd be fine, and so uh, and sure enough, it did. And I listened to the recording of it, and that part came out totally fine. 
it, it was it was exciting, but also like kind of a lot of you know pressure at the same time because you know I'm a founder and and you know I'm a, you know a leader at the medical school, so you know there was some pressure. But in the end, I just relaxed and I enjoyed it, and it was a tremendous experience. You, I assume, did like solo and ensemble competitions and things when you were in grade school, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember doing those and solos were always so tough because I get I get very nervous too. I don't like being in front of people, being the center of attention and um, those solos really get the really get yeah. the nerves going <laughs> for sure. So um, so back to the to the LSO as a whole, what would you say the biggest challenge is? So um, some of the challenges is that, you know, we are amateurs, you know, we do have other jobs. And so we intentionally picked Sunday evening to rehearse because kind of thinking, okay, people have their kids tucked away and, you know, hopefully they, they don't have to work unless they're on call or something. So the you know, challenge is, you know, you know, making sure that people can come and make sure they're dedicated to showing up. And then there are other challenges kind of logistically. We often perform at Hill Auditorium and we actually have to pay for it and we have to get in line to get dates and times. Uh, we're not, you know, kind of, we're not high up on a totem pole of, of when we get the big dates. And so we're often left with kind of what's left over. And so we just deal with what we get. Other than that, we did have challenges with, you know, raising money. So it does cost money to to run the orchestra. And so we would have volunteer donations during the, you know, concerts and had opportunities for people to donate throughout. And it costs tens of thousands of dollars per season because you have to rent music, you have to rent the hall. If you're playing with a piano, you have to rent that. You have to, we pay the conductor, even though they're a graduate student, they deserve to be paid. So fortunately, um, one of the people who was in the quintet with me, Michael, Dr. Michael DiPietro, he and his wife endowed the orchestra. So um, we now have a decent amount of funds for the orchestra. We still need to raise because we're always trying to do, you know, great things. But now the pressure for raising money is not as much as it was before Dr. DiPietro and his wife helped us endow the orchestra. What do you enjoy most about the Life Sciences Orchestra? So um, nowadays I'm not playing in it, but when I was playing in it, you know, I felt it was really important just to be connecting with people from all backgrounds who have a common interest in music and just being there and being in the moment. I remember one time we were playing the symphony and I had like 50 measures of rest and I had a lot of work to do at home. And I said to myself, I said, why am I here counting these rests? <laughs> then I realized, you know, I need to be here just breathing, counting these rests, staying in the moment. And it just made me reframe it, you know, that this is a good opportunity to be here and to just be in the moment and not to think about five other things. So that's what I enjoy. I love the people. I love connecting at concerts and when people show up and it said, oh my goodness, I had no idea that this person played the trumpet or that this orchestra existed or it was so good. Um, and so we surprise so many of our colleagues with the, our talents. 
And I'm also really proud that uh, every year people say that they came to Michigan because of LSO. And um, one woman who was a flutist when I came back years ago and played, she was dying of breast cancer. And she told me that one of the things that was helping give her strength was being in the orchestra. Wow. Yeah. And so I remember we played um, we played the Beethoven Six, I believe, the Pastoral, and um, and I remember the last note that she played with the orchestra. She held on for that concert, and also she was holding on because her son was graduating from law school. But you know, she told me that that gave her strength. And soon after that concert, and her son graduated. Um, she had a rapid decline, but it's just it's just so heartwarming that how the orchestra helps people in life and even as they're transitioning. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. Feel it probably feels good, especially in comparison to that early comment from the from those yeah. music from students those, in the beginning. Yes. Yeah, it's, no, that's great. Because um, music has healing, and even if as if we're dying, we could still be thriving in, in some ways. And so I'm really happy that this gave that one flutist an opportunity to thrive while she was going through a tough thing in her life. Have you ever read the book, The this is just an aside, have you ever read the, the book, The Mozart Effect, about how music, the healing effects of music and how it can affect your health and you know your psychology and your mental state? So I, I didn't read it, but I know I've read a lot of articles that allude to it and um, talked about a lot of that with friends as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. My um, this is also just an aside really quick. My mom um, had Alzheimer's and uh, especially in the late stages, you know, she didn't recognize people. She couldn't feed herself, you know, required basically full time care. But we always have music playing in our house and I had her over and she was sitting at the table and some uh, a song came on and I was kind of walking around doing things, you know, she's sitting there and I, I sat down with her and sure enough, she was humming along perfectly to the song, um, to the tune. And it was just amazing yeah. how that kind of sticks and sticks in the, in the brain, in the memories. But so you said you don't, um, you're not currently with playing in the life sciences orchestra. Do you play in any other ensembles? No, not now. Uh, in fact, I haven't played my flute in a while, but I'm going to figure out how to return to that. Um, so there's a competition through the National Flute Association for Amateur Flutists that I'm thinking about entering. So that means I'll have to practice and get good. So, uh, <laughs> so I, I may resume playing probably sometime this summer. To help us get to know you a little bit better, I have some non-music questions to ask you. The first is, I always like to ask about people's names just because I think you can learn potentially learn mm -hmm. some interesting things. Is there a reason or interesting story about either why you were given your first or, and or your middle name? No, I don't, I don't think so. 
But my last name, when I went to college, everyone at, would ask if I was related to the Browns who started it. So my friends in my freshman dorm called me David of Brown. <laughs> um, do you have any siblings? Yes, I have lots. I have, they're all half siblings and on two different halves. So I have two half siblings from my mother and five half siblings from my father. Are you an early bird or a night owl? I'm an early bird. Every person I've asked that question is an early bird. <laughs> we have lots <laughs> of early birds in the department. <laughs> well, if you're going to operate, you're going to have to be up early, even yeah. if you're not <laughs> right. <laughs> if you weren't one, you've turned into one. Do you hit the snooze button or do you get up right away? So I get up right away and I wake up at five every morning, but um, many times I wake up before my alarm goes off. Do you collect anything? I collect a few things. I collect actually flutes. I collect, I have like three, you know, Traverse flutes, bone flutes uh, that I perform with. But I also have like a, a Chinese flute, uh, three Native American flutes. I have a flute when we go to Ghana. I have a flute from there. I have uh, an Irish flute uh, and I have uh, a, a didgeridoo, which is a form of flute as well from, from Australia. And so I collect those and I also connect magnets from when I travel. So my refrigerator has magnets of places that I've been to. Roller coasters, yay or nay? Well, when I was younger, yay. But as I'm getting older, nay. I just think I'm more nervous about things as I get older. I think when you're younger, you you don't fear much. Uh, and then when you're older, you realize there are lots of things to fear. And last but not least, uh, is a hot dog a sandwich? It, it depends. You know, technically a sandwich is... Uh, two pieces of bread with something in the middle. So if there's a hot dog in the middle, two pieces of bread, then it is a sandwich. But if it's a hot dog alone, then it's not. But even if it is a sandwich, it's not a great sandwich. <laughs> Thank you again to Dr. Brown for chatting with me. If you're interested in learning more about the Life Sciences Orchestra, including information on how to audition and upcoming concerts, visit the link in the show notes or go to michiganmedicine.org and search for Life Sciences Orchestra. Mm -hmm.